when I actually shot that deer, I had thought that I had missed it because it did not move a single inch and it just walked off like nothing happened. So, you know, being disappointed, I sat there for a couple hours just in disbelief. Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast, episode number 224. Danielle Halverson, asking to hunt, guiding for muleys, a young hunter's perspective. Please support our sponsors as they make this show possible. Today's show is sponsored by Black Ash Outdoor Products. Reduce your risk of tree stand suspension trauma with a tree stand wingman, the tree stand emergency descender system. The Enforcer, take control of your odor footprint with your personal ozone generator. The Rack Packer, don't drag your deer out of the woods like a caveman. Never drag a deer again. No need to kill yourself dragging a deer when there's the Rack Packer. Use the promo code BIGBUCK, B-I-G-B-U-C-K, at checkout to earn free shipping at $23 value. Go to therackpacker.com. Covert Scouting Cameras, remote cameras for hunting, wildlife, and security. The Horny Buck Seed Company, it's all about the freshest seed. Morse's Sporting Goods, a full line of sporting goods without the sales tax. Northwoods Common Sense, New England's finest white-tailed deer lures, 100% fresh, pure, and undiluted. And Big Buck Merch, for only $19.99, you can get a cool, high-quality Big Buck t-shirt and show support for this podcast by visiting www.bigbuckregistry.com forward slash M-E-R-C-H. Big Buck Registry is a virtual museum of hunting stories. We preserve a piece of Americana by interviewing and recording hunters about their hunts and experiences from across the country. And who knows, maybe we'll learn a thing or two along the way that'll help us take our hunt to the next level. Hey, this is Matt Ross from QDMA, and you're listening to one of my favorite podcasts on the internet, the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. This is John Lowe, Executive Director of TMA. You're fixing to listen to the Big Buck Registry Deer Hunting Podcast. Hi, this is Shane Mahoney from Conservation Visions Incorporated, and I'm listening now to one of my favorite hunting podcasts, Big Buck Registry Deer Hunting Podcast. Hello, ladies and gentlemen and fellow predators. My name is Jay. Thank you for tuning in to the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. For Dusty Phillips and Jim Keller and the entire staff here at the Big Buck Registry, welcome to this week's show. There are a couple things I'd like you to do for us if you could. If you would, please check us out on iTunes. Subscribe and leave us a review. With your help, we're going to try and push this show up the iTunes charts. I know we have a lot of listeners out there and I need you to take some action. I need you to leave a review and subscribe to the show. If you do subscribe, that'll give you access and notification each and every week that a new show is released. You can also access this show in its entirety on YouTube, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio, and Google Play. It's all right there for you to access on demand at your fingertips. Regarding the harness program, we have an ample supply of harnesses to give away from our volunteer donors. If you're in need of a full-body harness, please send an email to j at bigbuckregistry.com. Danielle Halverson is 20 years old. A petite frame, you would be hard-pressed if you passed her on the street to think the word stone-cold killer. But make no mistake about it. Despite her age, looks, and demeanor, Danielle is a lethal bow hunter. 
It is interesting to interview today's younger generation and come across someone like Danielle, who says she never stops thinking about deer hunting, guides for mule deer, and has a couple of 170-inch class deer under her belt. Before we turn to our interview with Danielle Halverson, let's turn to Jim Keller with the Deer News. For the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the Deer News. Our first story this week, in Minnesota, CWD tests are mandatory for deer harvested November 4th through 5th in central, north central, and southeast Minnesota. This story is from the OutdoorNews.com website. Precautionary testing during the first two days of firearm deer season will determine whether chronic wasting disease may have spread from captive deer to wild deer in central and north central Minnesota, according to a news release from the DNR. Wild deer in these areas are not known to have CWD, but mandatory testing of wild deer that hunters harvest is a proactive and preventative measure to protect Minnesota's deer herd. All hunters in affected deer permit areas will be required to have their harvested deer tested on Saturday, November 4th or Sunday, November 5th. After field dressing their deer, hunters must take them to a sampling station. DNR staff will remove lymph nodes, which will be submitted for laboratory testing. Central Minnesota deer permit areas with mandatory testing are 218, 219, 229, 277, 283, and 285. North Central Minnesota deer permit areas with mandatory testing are 155, 171, 172, 242, 246, 247, 248, and 249. Deer harvested in southeastern Minnesota's permit areas in 343, 345, 346, 347, 348, and 349 are also subject to mandatory testing on November 4th and 5th because of their proximity to CWD-infected wild deer permit in Area 603. For detailed information about mandatory CWD testing this fall, sampling station locations, and a related precautionary feeding ban, please check the Minnesota DNR website at dnr.state.mn.us. Louisiana Dentist Shoots Potential Archery State Record Non-Typical Buck. This story is from the Outdoor Hub website. A dentist in Louisiana has a great reason to be smiling this month after he took down a buck that could go down as the biggest non-typical deer taken with a bow the state has ever seen, and the hunting story is as good as gold. As Louisiana Sportsman reports, Dr. Frank Sullivan had more than a couple run-ins with this buck. In fact, he thought it died twice. Sullivan said his first encounter with the buck was during last season, and he and his plumber's son went after it hard, hunting on property very close to each other. He shot him the second day of the season last year, Sullivan said. However, the deer survived the shot, and the three-year-old buck pushed onward. Another encounter with the buck occurred from inside Sullivan's dentist's office, where he watched the deer through binoculars get hit by a car. Sullivan said he assumed from the impact that the buck was dead, but when an officer went into the ditch in search of the animal, it got up and ran away. Still, Sullivan was worried that the buck wouldn't be able to make it because of its injuries. But then three weeks later, the deer, which by now should be called the ghost buck or something, showed itself again, this time right behind Sullivan's office. Sullivan, who is an avid deer hunter, keeps regular tabs on the deer living behind his dental practice, so he started paying extra close attention to this one particular buck. Finally, during an evening hunt that was full of ups and downs, Dr. Frank Sullivan got the job done and put a 25-yard shot on this brute of an 18-point that gross scores between 220 and 230 inches. The rack now has 60 days to go through a drying process before it can be officially scored, although folks who have already laid eyes on this thing have said they have total confidence it will land in the Pope and Young record books as the new archery state record. 
three arrested after high-speed chase and deer poaching incident. This story is from the NECN News website and was reported by Caitlin McKinley Becker. Three people have been arrested after a nighttime deer poaching incident and subsequent high-speed chase in Danville, Vermont, on Saturday, October 21st. The Vermont Fish and Wildlife Department says Carl Sanborn, 47, and his son, Jonathan Sanborn, 20, allegedly shot at a deer decoy with a bow and arrow that had been placed by the Vermont State Game Wardens in that area because of its strong history of poaching activity. Officials say a high-speed chase followed during which a bow and rangefinder were thrown from the suspect's vehicle. The vehicle, a convertible registered to Carl Sanborn, was driven by a 16-year-old who will be processed as a juvenile. He was charged with eight counts, including a felony charge for attempting to elude police and faces more than eight years in prison and $12,000 in fines. Carl Sanborn is being charged with seven counts, including taking big game by illegal means, hunting while under revocation, failure to stop for a game warden, and contributing to juvenile delinquency. He faces more than two years in prison and $14,000 in fines. Carl Sanborn has previously been convicted of 24 fish and wildlife crimes dating back to 1993 and was sentenced to 81 days and fined $6,800 because of those convictions. Jonathan Sanborn was charged with six counts and faces more than two years in prison and $8,000 in fines. The 13-year-old who was a passenger in the vehicle is not being charged. The car, bow, rangefinder, and light were all seized and can be forfeited to the state upon conviction. Carl and Jonathan Sanborn and the 16-year-old juvenile, who is not being identified, stand to lose their hunting, fishing, and trapping privileges for three years. The Vermont Fish and Wildlife Department asks anyone with information about poaching activity to call their local warden through the nearest state police dispatch or to leave an anonymous tip to Operation Game Thief at 1-800-75-ALERT or 1-800-752-5378. That concludes this week's edition of the Big Buck Registry Deer News. For links to the stories featured this week, please check our show notes at www.bigbuckregistry.com. If you have any ideas for future topics or have questions about any of these topics, please email me at jim at bigbuckregistry.com. For the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the Deer News. Thanks to Jim Keller for the Deer News. Without further ado, here is Danielle Halverson. Danielle Halverson, welcome to the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. How are you? Good. How are you today? I'm doing well. Doing well. Where are you at, Danielle? I am at home in southwest Wisconsin. Southwest Wisconsin. Now, Wisconsin, as we all know, on the Big Buck Registry is a big deer hunting state and home to several of the largest bucks on record. Um, How does that play into your life? Yes, sir. Um, I have spent... Ever since I was a kid, I have been hunting up here, always managing my properties I have, getting the best population I possibly can to grow the biggest deer possible. And, I mean, living in one of the Midwest states with some of the biggest whitetail we have, it's just unbelievable hunting, and it's a lot of opportunity to be able to harvest and hunt a mature deer. Gotcha. Now, I like how you called me sir. I think that's cool, but... I guess we should establish, maybe that's just the, the way you you brought up, but um, let's. how old are you? I'm 20. You're 20, okay. So I guess being a 46-year-old guy, that kind of makes me earn the sir word. I get that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. No, it's good. It's play. It's, it's the manners, which sometimes we don't see anymore. So I, I appreciate well, I mean, it. Learn them. <laughs> right. No, that's great. I'm I'm uh, I'm glad to see that you're you're uh, a polite individual. That's always important. So so you're 20 years old. Uh, what was life like as a kid? As a kid, 
I grew up hunting and fishing alongside my dad. I honestly don't have much memory of doing anything else other than going to school. It was always go to school, come home, go hunt, get up, go to school, come home, and go hunt. Really? Interesting. So hunt, so hunting was like the after-school activity. It was. It was like a reward. Fascinating. Tell me about your dad. My dad is 47, and he grew up in the town I live in now. And he was always, he didn't have much as a kid, so he was always outside doing outdoor activities. And then when I came along, he kind of just passed that on to me. And he started doing taxidermy a couple of years ago, which is a huge benefit to me because, you know, I get my mounts at a good discount. And <laughs> he's always been involved. <laughs> right. Is, uh, what did your dad teach you as a, as a hunter, as a, as a person? My dad has taught me what I would consider probably the ground basics of hunting. He was there hunting alongside me until I was about 13, and then I started to kind of go off on my own. You know, we'd hunt separate, get back together. He taught me how to be independent, how to know my deer, how to know, well, basically any animal I've been hunting, how to call, how to do everything. And he established the ground basics for me, and then I went out on my own and just built from that and started to learn my personal deer on my property, where they're going to be, what time they're going to be there, and just all their patterns. Okay. We need to dig into that a little bit more in a sec here because I want to I want to understand how much you were able to learn and how much you put in your hunting based off of what your dad taught you about deer hunting. Okay. And it sounds like, I mean, we learn things on our own as we hunt, right? That's part of hunting is learning. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I'm interested to hear how you – how you put that in your, your memory bank as to what to do next, like what keys off it. We'll get into that in, in depth in a second. So your dad sounds like he was your inspiration or, or mentor as, as yeah. you're growing up. Most definitely. Okay. What are you doing now as far as uh, employment? I can see that you, you're representing um, some different companies. Uh, it looks like you're involved with Rubline Marketing. How has that come into your life? Yes, um, I have this job with Rubline Marketing, which has opened a lot of doors of opportunity. We market companies that are mostly in the outdoor industry, taxidermists, wind pro, things like that. So it's given me a lot of opportunity to meet a lot of different people and be able to learn a lot of different things. Always talking about hunting all day long, you know, you learn a lot more than you would just talking to your average people. Right. Do you find hunting as an entity an interesting subject? I do. It's all I want to talk about all day long. <laughs> really? Interesting. What what um, what intrigues you about it? It's just that I would say it has to be the fact that you're out there putting in the work to see the end result. It's not about, you know, sometimes it's about teamwork, but mostly it's just about you as an individual being able to successfully do a job and get that done. And I think that's what I take the most pride in. Right. Do you find that it comes naturally these days? Like the, I mean, I never feel like hunting is, it never ends. Like there's always more to it. There's never a, an end point, but the journey is so fulfilling as you go. The frustrations are, are as fulfilling as the successes for some reason. I never understood that, but it's like, it's just part of, of the game. Right. I feel like, you know, just being out in nature and learning so many different things, it's peaceful. You know, you get to be out there and do what you love. And once you successfully complete one hunt, you know, it's on to the next. And you get to go on and continue to 
expand your skills and your knowledge on different deer, different animals. It's just everything all together. I just can't get enough of it. Right. What is it? What does it mean to you, like philosophically? So to me, hunting is all about, in my beliefs, I believe that it is something that's out there for us individuals who like to thrive, to support our families, to fill our freezers, to be able to put in the time to have the ultimate end result in which we want, you know, our ultimate trophy. And any animal can be a trophy. It doesn't matter if it's a doe or a buck or anything, as long as it means something to you. And I believe that it's something that everyone should take the opportunity to learn about and not just judge it based on their personal beliefs and opinions. They should be more open to viewing it as a whole and what we actually do for conservation and how much money and time we spend to put in just to have a successful hunt. You know, it's not just all about shooting a 200-inch whitetail or shooting multiple deer a year. It's about how much you contribute to controlling the populations and how much you contribute to conservation as a whole. It's not just about, you know, ultimately ending a life. Right. I agree with you. I think it's a it's a conservation effort and, a, and to each his own. I mean, I think everybody has a different viewpoint on what hunting should be and, and is to them. I, mean, I think you hit on some very, very good topics there. Very, very important points. Do you recollect your first hunting experience? I do. My first hunt I ever went on, I was two and a half years old, I believe. It was two, two and a half. And it was when I was just getting you know, old enough that my mom would let my dad take me out on my own. And he would carry me in his backpack when we went on our coon hunting adventures. Hmm. And so that was a coon hunting adventure was your first recollection. Yep. <laughs> All right. That's very cool. I, I can't say everybody has that, that first moment as it's usually squirrels. This was, this was coon hunting. So that's, that's interesting. Yep. Go coon hunting. <laughs> Love it. When you think about like, I mean, you're, you're at the beginning of your young adulthood, right? Yes, sir. What are your goals as far in life and in the, the hunting aspects um, personally, and, and maybe even professionally, maybe you're maybe you're pursuing a professional career in the hunting world. Right. My goals right now, as far as the hunting or outdoor community, are I'm really content where I am right now. You know, working my way up the ladder slowly. Um, ultimately, my goal is to just be a part of the industry as a whole, be a good role model for other people coming up into it. You know, remain a professional standpoint. And, you know, overall, I just want to be a good example to younger people, people of all ages. They're coming into the community, aren't sure how to approach it, don't know exactly how to get involved in it. I um, I like to take out youth hunters. I like to get women involved, whatever I can do to help anyone that is, you know, maybe wants to be a part of it but can't afford it. They want to go on a hunt, but they don't have the land. I like to help out anybody as far as wanting to get involved, and I would like to continue to do that no matter where my career path may take me, I always want to come back to my roots and why I originally have gotten to where I am. Gotcha. Okay. Who are your allies in the industry right now? Friends, uh, your dad, um, people that you've met. Who do you consider uh, part of your crew? Um, I have some very good friends that I've gone on hunts with, like Allie Butler. She's a big hunter in Kentucky. Um, I've made a lot of female friends in Texas, Nicole Oliver, Kelsey Schlute. Um, my bosses that I'm very close with, Chase Rothlin, Dan Drake, they've been really good. We've gone on hunts together. I try, I try to keep my circle kind of tight to the point where, you know, 
you know everybody and everybody can have a good time and go on friends and not have any issues and but I'm always open to going with other people and taking other people. And I would say those are my closest, tightest allies in the community okay. right now. All right. Very good. Now, just cruising your your public Facebook page, there's some amazing bucks on your page, which leads me to believe that you probably know what you're doing out there. These these deer that you've killed um, don't look small, and you're not shooting spike horns, in other words. Let's get into some tactics and strategies that you've learned over the years that your dad's taught you or other people have taught you or maybe in, on some of these hunts that you've been on and try to try to kind of dig into some of your skill sets that you're using these days. Let's start with just a new property. You're going on a new hunt to a new place. What? How do you start that approach? Where do you begin that hunt? Okay, so I actually have 100% experience in that. In 2015, I had a new piece of property. It was only 84 acres. Um, it was landlocked by a couple thousand, so I mean, it was untouched, but I received that property in late August, you know, not really enough time to prep for bow season that starts in 15 days, but I set out cameras, I ran cameras, I found out where the deer were kind of moving at night, I would set my sets up close to there, hoping to catch them, you know, coming out to the food plots and fields to feed at night. I sat in that stand every morning and every night Hmm. for 45 days before I actually figured out where the target buck I was after was coming from and moving from. I patterned the deer, figured them out, you know, set mock scrapes, got them to come in, and finally successfully harvested my buck a week after that. Okay. And I think it's all just kind of about, you know, setting your waters, your food, figuring out your deer. You know, if you have the time to pattern them like that, it's just amazing to be able to have that kind of history with a deer on a new piece of property. What what was it that you keyed in on? Like, when did you decide, or how did you go about figuring out the the pattern of this buck? Forty five days in the in the stand is a lot of time. What did it you, is a good? It is a ton of time. And I mean, what I did is I found up here in Wisconsin, our deer trails, at least in my experience, you'll have your pretty heavy trails, and I get my bikes patterned usually every two to five days. And this one happened to be on a three-day rotation. He would come through to a certain area where, I mean, you could get a clear shot regardless of what trail he came in on. So I had him patterned down to the specific area he was bedding in and where he was going to feed. And I caught him the second week of the rut going in between those two, chasing a doe. Okay. And I actually had, he had changed his patterns on me. I had him patterned down, but he had changed his patterns to about 80 yards from me instead of 40. So I went in dead of night, set up another tree stand closer to where he was starting to come in at, and I shot him the next morning. Interesting. So, Okay, so you decided that setting up a stand in the dead of night was was the time to move it. Why did you decide that? I had had the least amount, at this time of the year, I had had the least amount of deer movement at that time of night. It was about, I mean, it wasn't late. It was like 11 p.m. So that's when I had the least amount of deer movement. So I figured I'd get in and out. It wasn't where he was feeding or where he was bedding. It was about, you know, it was 200 yards between there, and it was about dead in the middle. I decided that was going to be my plan of action. And if it worked, it worked. And if it didn't, it didn't. And it just happened to play in my favor. Okay. So you, you took a shot. You took a chance that perhaps this is where I need to be. And why why nighttime? What was the nighttime aspect? What was the importance of that? You know, I've always had, I've always, talking to people, I've always kind of relate or gotten information from them about what they would do. And I had a couple of my close hunting friends tell me that 
if they were to do it, that they would do it in the middle of the night or in the middle of the day. Mm. And I had had this fear coming through in the early mornings. So my thought process was, if I can get it in there tonight, I could possibly have a dead deer in the morning. Because okay. he was patterned every three days, and that would have been the third day. Gotcha. All right, so moving in, in the, the middle of the, of the night, middle of the day, when they're probably moving the least, I would imagine, uh, based off of studies, most likely, that that might be your best opportunity to not disturb the, the very buck that you're chasing. Correct. Okay. Now, there, we all make mistakes in the field when we're hunting deer. During that 45-day time frame. During that 45 days, it was my first archery buck I was chasing, and obviously I was still learning a lot. You know, we have to be up close and in range for this kind of deer. And I made a lot of mistakes in that time frame. I made the mistake of getting out of the stand too early, you know, going in too late after school was over. And I made the mistake of not being in the right stand at the right time, you know. I never really took control into the best consideration at that time and I got busted a few times by does but as it went on and I learned what was going on I was able to control more of those factors and be able to successfully harvest the deer okay gotcha what else can did you remember like how my I can't believe I just did that or why I really need to remember that the next time there was one time so it would have been when he came in that third day before I shot him and he was down too far from me, he had actually gone embedded 80 yards from my tree stand for the rest of the evening. It was like an hour before dark. And I made a mistake that night of I had thought he had got up and left to go out to feed, mm. but he was still there. And I got out of my stand too early and jumped him. But fortunately enough, it didn't stop him from coming back. But it could have resulted in a bad mistake. Okay. What, let's break that down a little bit. What, what time were you in the stand? I got to the stand that evening at one thirty in the afternoon. It was after the time change. So it was, you know, getting dark about five thirty, six o'clock. Okay. And when did you get down? I got down at six, six forty-five. Yeah. Cause right. I waited an hour after dark hour for him to go, but he did not go. And that was still too, too early an hour after dark. Yep. He was still there. Hmm. What, looking back on that, did you get any feedback from people as to when to get out of there? I mean, an hour just waiting to leave is a lot, but how would you know that the buck is still there? Right. That was the issue is, you know, I can't see 80 yards in the dark, so I wouldn't really know to, I mean, you can't really know when the way the property was set up is you can't really go out the backside because that was someone else's land. Right. So it was kind of just one of those wait and see kind of deals. It is a dilemma. Like, how long is too long? How long? How, how long? How little is too too little? How long do you stand in that that stand? You wait all night. I mean, there's just no way to tell. Right. It's just one of those trial and error kind of deals. Right. Gotcha. What other tips and and, and tactics do you uh, use when you go out there? Um, or what what other tools do, of of the hunting trades do you use when you go out there? My biggest things I do to prepare for season to continue to prep during season is I always make sure all my scrapes are freshly scented. I always make sure I'm running cameras to figure out where the deer are coming from. When I target a specific deer, I set more cameras around the trails to figure out what area he's coming from, what time of day he's coming in, how his patterns are going to change. Um, scent control, I'm huge on scent control. I never used to be until I realized what an effort it really does put into allowing you to have a more successful hunt. Um, I mean, 
Wisconsin's kind of a hard state because we can't feed our deer or bait our deer. You know, it's just kind of a fit and wait kind of game. We can't hunt over feeders. We can't, you know, draw in a specific time for those deer to come in. It's just you got to catch them and figure them out. And it's hard to hunt before the rut because everything's moving at nighttime like it is now. But, I mean, if you can get out there and pattern your deer and make sure that you're undetected, you can get, you can have a success story out of it. Right. Why? Let's talk about scrapes for a little bit. What about the scrape do you like and why do you use them? It sounds like you're using um, uh, mock scrapes for the most part. Tell me about that. So I have a lot of scrapes on my property that the deer obviously make themselves. And what I always do when I go into the woods is I freshen them up to attract those deer in. What's Right now it's after hours because, you know, they're still moving at dark. And I attract them in to see where and what time they're coming in. And it has played in my benefit the last two years. And I have successfully been able to hunt over those scrapes. In in 2015, I also shot a 170 over one of my mock scrapes. Hmm. This year, I have several good deer coming into my mock scrapes. It's just one of those things that I think can really benefit you as a hunter. Or it can really benefit your hunt at the end of the day if you can get those deer to be coming in. So you're... You're using the mock scrape as an attractant, and you're then hunting over them. So, and you're you're watching the time frame. Is the time frame based off of camera use, so you can determine what time they're showing up? Yes. Okay. Let's get into the details of of how you make a mock scrape, and how do you decide where to place them? Most of the time, I decide based on I find out where my good deer movement is, you know, and then I try to find. Most of the time, I do it on the edge of the field. And I'll find a tree that, you know, the limbs are coming down, break off one of the limbs at the bottom, you know, where they can reach it, mm-hmm. have some of my wind pro on it, and then underneath it, I'll scrape it up and get to the dirt and take a stick and I draw what could look like antlers. I don't know why I do that, but I do. And I hit it with some more of the mock scrape attractant and set up a camera and I've had really good success with okay. that. And how big is the area that you're hunting? Right now, one of my properties is just over 90 acres, and the other one is 50 acres in Wisconsin. All right. And how many mock scrapes in those spots do you set up? I have four on the 90 and two on the 50. Okay. And then each mock scrape gets a camera? Yep. Okay. I try not to overdo it because I don't, I don't know. I just, it's one of those things that I just think to myself that don't overdo it. Okay. And then the... Do you hunt over the scrape as well? Do you get put a stand in each of those spots, or do you wait until you get active, or wait until you get action on the cameras? Yeah, so what I do is, right now, my stands that are set are not over the mock scrapes. I have one blind that's close to one of them, because I've had some good doe movement during later hours of the day, so, you know, you might just get lucky sometimes. And But I wait until I can pattern a specific buck that I'm after on when and which scrape they're going to be coming into because, I mean, to me, I'm a 20-year-old female that, you know, does everything alone, so I don't have the financials or time to set eight tree stands with cameraman stands with them, too, on each scrape, so I try to get everything figured out and then go based on that. Okay. All right, so you are you have a couple of pieces of property that you hunt. You, you put out the mock scrapes, you put a camera on it, and then you watch and how frequently are you checking cameras? I check cameras every two to three days. Okay. Based on when I'm 
awesome. When I'm on the road for work, I don't get to check them for a couple weeks sometimes, but I always make sure I get back to them or if my dad has time, he'll go check them for me. Okay. And is there a particular technique that you use for checking a camera? I mean, it's kind of sounds like a silly question, but I've heard people, you know, they'll they'll put uh, corn dust on their boots, or you know, they they'll they'll ride in and check it from the the buggy or the four wheeler, and they won't even get off the four wheeler, or you know, different things like that. Is there anything in particular that you that you uh, worry about when you go and check cameras frequently, or disturbing the area with with human scent? What's your strategy there? I treat it as if I were to go be going on a hunt, basically, you know. Most of my spots where my cameras are, you can't access by a four-wheeler or any, you know, you have to go by foot. So I always, I treat it as if I were about to go hunting. So I throw all my clothes that I'm going to take, use ozone to kill the bacteria and viruses that cause the odors, leave that in the bed of my truck, go out to the field, get dressed, bring my boots down with my scent killer, and then I go in to check the cameras and some of my cameras I can actually check when I'm on my way to the tree stand. So I'll just grab the SD cards out, swap them with a new one. And I got a little card reader that goes in my phone and I can sit there and check them while I'm in the stand. Okay. All right. And so you're swapping cards as you go and then you're looking at, yeah. the, at the cards once you get to the stand. Okay. Um, will you hunt an area before you, you, you're aware that a buck is in the area? Yes. I have done that a lot actually. You know, growing up, I didn't always have the money to buy 20 trail cameras. So I would just kind of wing it and figure things out. But thankfully now I'm able to track my deer and everything. But my one property that I just got, the 50 acres, I have I got it about two weeks ago. I've never hunted it. Just got cameras set up this week when I got home. And, I mean, I sat in a tree stand in it on Monday that I put up. And I seen good doe movement which during the rut is going to play to my benefit. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's talk about getting property to hunt. Sounds like you have two properties. You just got a property a couple of weeks ago. What's the process mm-hmm. for you? For me, it's very hard up here because everybody's a deer hunter. So my way I go about it is I find people who don't really have the kids or the time or anything like that to hunt. I get to know them, get to know their property, and I flat out just ask them, like, if I can hunt it, just, I only bow hunt, I don't rifle hunt anymore, so that plays to my benefit, too, and this is going to sound kind of terrible, but I think it plays to my benefit that I'm just a young girl, too, because a lot of people don't think I'm capable of shooting one of their bigger bucks on their property, so they're like, yeah, you can go hunt, and then I do. (laughs) Right, and little do they know you're a stone-cold killer. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) That's excellent. What's your, I mean, what, how, how does that conversation start? Like, let's say you find a piece of property, but I really like to hunt it. How do you identify if it's like worthy of going and fi- finding out if, if you should approach that landowner or not? How do you decide? Well, I've grown up in this area my whole life. So, I mean, I grew up coon hunting, which has brought a big factor into me being able to know landowners. So I've kind of established those relationships since I was a kid with a lot of people. So basically like when I need a place to hunt, I just, I've had the experience, you know, I, I, we can shine in Wisconsin at night. So, I mean, I do a lot of shining just for fun, you know, ain't got much else to do. You go shine for deer, look for deer. So I've established like some of the better properties and what's on them. And then I take that and I use Onyx Maps. Mm-hmm. I go on there, find out who the landowner is. Sometimes I already know them. And I'll call them, strike up a conversation, you know, get to know them a little bit, let them get to know me. And then 
I'll just jump right into it and ask him, you know, hey, I'm looking for a property to bow hunt. I was wondering if you had any bow hunters or if you were interested in leasing your property. And 95% of the time they tell me, yeah, it's fine. Like, we don't even want any money. You can just go ahead. Just let us know when you're there and make sure, you know, you're being safe, wearing a harness and send us pictures. Okay. So the, these people are, are people you, you kind of know a little bit just from growing up in the area. So you're, you, you've got some familiarity with some of the families around and right. the, the shining, the, you'd actually, does that play in a lot into whether or not you choose to pursue that landowner? It, it has because so in Wisconsin, we can legally shine deer at night during certain hours and certain times of the year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can drive around and start to get a feel of, you know, where the deer are, the fields that they're in, who owns the land, and then it just kind of plays on top of it. Okay. All right. And then looking up a phone number, just you Google it, uh, look in the phone book. How do you decide uh, how to contact them? Most of the time, you know, usually, honestly, my dad has their contact information. Okay. But the times that he doesn't, I've just gone to the landowners. You know, most of them are farmers, so I'll just go over to the farm and talk to them if I don't have any contact information for them. But most of the time, my dad or someone he knows has their number to contact. Gotcha. All right. So you you get their number somehow, or you actually, it sounds like you're knocking on doors on occasion. Correct. Okay. That's a good system. And, and they don't, you feel like the bow hunting part of it lets your guard down quite a bit. So, so they're not as apprehensive about letting a hunter on, say, for using a gun. Right, because I feel like there are a lot of people around here are like that because we kind of have an issue with rifle hunters killing immature deer mm-hmm. and a lot of them. So when they see as a landowner that you're a dedicated bow hunter that's going to take the time and effort to harvest a mature whitetail, they're a lot more lenient on allowing you to hunt their piece of property. Okay. Now you said that the landowner has requested that you notify them when you're there. How do you go about that? Do you just do you just get a, a phone number and you text them or do you how do you notify them that you're you're going there that day? Yeah, all I do is I text them and tell them what stand location I'm going to be in because they just like to know some of the landowners both have themselves so they just want to make sure you know we're not disturbing each other if something were to happen my properties don't have any phone reception you know they're kind of just like another safety aspect if something were to happen they just want to make sure everything's okay okay gotcha so it's it's a safety concern and sometimes they haunt themselves so you just want to overlap your hunting areas that day right okay very interesting yeah have you ever had anybody say no I have okay and I mean, to me, you, if you don't ask, you'll never know mm-hmm. if it's a no, you just move on to the next. If it's a yes, you have a solid piece of property. Okay. How often do you find yourself asking during a year? Typically I have to find new property every year okay. around here. A lot of our chunks of property get bought and sold. I've had people find out where I was hunting and shooting some of my bigger deer and actually come and offer more money to hunt there. Mm-hmm. So I'd lose properties that way. It's just kind of, it, it's kind of a game. Okay. And it, it turns out that some of these properties are being leased when you, when you talk about money. Some you said, they said, just come and, and hunt for nothing. You know, just, just let us know. But then it sounds like there are other situations where you actually get in a, a bidding war of, of, in a sense. Right. And once people, you know, start throwing out too high dollars, it's, it's not really worth fighting for. Okay. Gotcha. 
How many did you ask? How many how many times did you end up asking permission last year in 2016, for example? In 2016, I had permission to hunt two properties. One was a close family friend, and the other was an older gentleman whose kids grew up, moved on, and didn't hunt anymore. Unfortunately, I didn't have much time to hunt either of those because I was guiding mule deer in West Texas all fall. Okay, gotcha. Let's let's talk about your mule deer hunts and guides. How did you get into guiding for mule deer living in Wisconsin? I had met my boss on Facebook, actually, and he had invited me down to do a varmint hunt at the ranch and get a feel for it to see if I wanted to essentially guide for mule deer last fall because he had seen, you know, what I can do with whitetails and wanted an experienced hunter to come down and do that. Gotcha. That's cool. <laughs> Facebook connection made. and Yeah, it was an interesting deal. <laughs> so what's the difference between hunting a whitetail and hunting a mule deer? There are a lot of them. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, I would expect mule- that to be the answer. So let's let's break that down a little bit. So mule deer are, in my opinion, almost the complete opposite of whitetail. You know, whitetail are real observant. They're always on top of things. They smell you. They see you. You know, they're cautious. In my experience hunting mule deer, and these were not high-pressured mule deer. I should say that, too. But um, they did not seem to have a single care in the world. Um, most of my hunts I did with my hunters were all squat and stock. Except for a few with bad backs, you know, we'd sit in blinds because they couldn't hike up the mountains and stuff. But these deer, they were nice to guide for because if something went wrong and you couldn't get that first shot opportunity they weren't going to go very far. It's like they didn't really care that you were there. Complete opposite of a whitetail. Now you'd see a whitetail on the ranch and see it, and it would take off. The mule deer, you could get within 15, 30 yards of them and be able to get your hunter on a successful archery shot because they were just so unobservant of what was going on. They have different mannerisms, right? They're they're different species. They act towards uh, their, their actions towards... Hunters are completely different. Completely different. What if you're guiding? That means you've got a client. So, what do you, what are you working on before the client gets there? And what's the hunt like when the client arrives? What are you trying to accomplish? So, before the client would get there, I'd spend my days scouting, figuring out where these deer were. They would typically feed in the same areas every morning. At night. It was a little, you know, here and there, whether or not you'd see them or not. But almost every morning they would feed in the same areas. So I would be out there scouting, finding out where these deer were, and just anticipating for that hunter to get there. Because that deer, you know, you can see it broad as daylight, but your hunter's still two days out, so it sucks. And then when they get there, I make sure they get all settled in. Everything's going good for them. They get ready for the hunt. And it usually starts with an afternoon hunt. So with the spot and stock hunters, I would give them basically kind of a tour of the ranch their first night, show them everything. We were hunting on 140,000 acres. So we had a lot of land to cover. That's, that's a and lot. And how I would go about that. Go ahead. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of land. That's a lot more than your 90 acres in Wisconsin. Yes, very much more. <laughs> and we had, I mean, we have really nice, like, gravel ranch roads, you know, that you can access every point of the ranch on. So that first night spent with the hunters was to kind of give them a little tour of the ranch. They'd bring their bow or their rifle during late season. And how I would go about that first night is I would tell them, you know, kind of the rundown of how things are going to work. 
get to know the hunter a little better, make sure they're comfortable. And a couple of them, we did end up being able to spot and stalk a deer that first night. Now, driving around, we get the feel for everything. If there was a good trophy mule deer, we would spot off in the distance. We would go after it and try to successfully harvest it. But to, like I said, like they mostly fed in the morning. So to like go and try to spot and stalk a deer that you're not going to see in that area that you've seen in the morning, it's just kind of not a waste of your time, but it's just not really worth it. And it's kind of a, it's discouraging to your hunter, I found, when they don't see, you know, a good deer that first night. They kind of get discouraged, so I like to give them a tour, let them see some good deer, go after it if we can, and on to the next morning. Okay. The spot and stock, how does that work? Tell me about, let's break that down a little bit further, get into some of the details. What? How do you start a, a spot and stock, and what's the approach like? So, to start the spot and stock, we, we access most of the ranch by pickups. So, we'll be off in the distance. We had a high rack on the truck. It's um, basically just a rack that goes in the bed of the truck. People hunt varmints off them a lot. And when daylight would come up, we would be up there just glazing, looking for these deer, where they were going to come out at. And when we seen them and found out they were feeding in their area, we'd hop off. They couldn't see the vehicle from where we were. We'd pick our directional path of which way we were going to go based on the sun glare, the wind, you know, what the terrain was like and get up and close into them. And then we had a lot of short, like, cedar bushes, so you could hide behind those. But when you're ultimately coming to your shot, you have to step out around those. So a lot of it had to play in with that. In early archery season in West Texas, those bucks are still in their bachelor group. You have to make sure you have eyes on all three to five of those deer and make sure that not a single one of them busts you. It's Mm. quite the process, but it's got a very rewarding outcome. Okay. So are you with the client the whole time, uh, step by step, telling them what to do, what not to do? Every minute of it from sun up to sundown. Okay. That's a long day. Very long day. Uh, how often do you do that? Last fall, I was down there from September until December. This fall, they are doing a management program on the ranch, so there are no trophy hunts. So I get to bow hunt this fall, which is awesome. Hmm. And then... Next fall, it'll be back to September through December. Okay. So the, and this brings up an interesting question. You get the bow hunt on the ranch for mule deer, I would assume, maybe even whitetails. I don't know. How, how are you going to approach the, the, the archery hunt in Texas when you're doing a lot of these spot and stocks, which I assume are mostly with rifles? Well, unfortunately, I don't actually get to hunt on the ranch because every deer has a price tag. But 60% of my hunters are bow hunters. Okay. Another 40 are rifle hunters. Okay. So you're doing spot and stock with bow hunters too? Yes. Wow. Okay. Interesting. So where, what is your hunt going to be? If you can't hunt the ranch, what, where do you plan to hunt? So when I was down there from September to December, I had a two week period where mule deer season was closed and it was too hot to guide whitetails. So I actually got to come home and bow hunt for two weeks, which happened to be Halloween into the second week of November which was prime time. Unfortunately, didn't have any success, but that's just kind of like what I get out of it. Okay. So you're given some time to, to hunt on occasion. Now you, yeah, you just said something interesting right there. It's too hot to hunt whitetails. What does that mean? Well, in West Texas, those two weeks, it was about 110 degrees during the day and about 80 degrees at night. 
Okay. So our deer movement was only coming in at, you know, the middle of the night to get water. So my boss would tell the hunters that were booked that week, like, this is what the weather's like. It's not going to be the best hunting. We can reschedule it when it's going to cool down in a couple of weeks. That's kind of how that all went down, and we were able to have a couple of weeks off. Okay. Well, it's interesting you say that because, you know, as hunters across the country, when the warm weather is there, abnormal hot weather, especially in the fall, you you notice a lack of deer movement, and it causes a lack of hunters to hunt and a lack of deer to move. That's just kind of the assumption. But it's interesting that even in, even in Texas— where it's hot all the time, that there's a time, for, there's a, a temperature where even the guides say we're not hunting whitetail today. That's interesting. Yeah, it just gets to be too miserable for the hunter, for the, the deer aren't moving. It's just kind of discouraging, and you know it really puts down your success rate. And that's not what you want as an outfitter. You want to be able to give somebody the best experience they can. Right, and that's 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 uh, that's notable. Very good, Danielle. We talked earlier about coming up with your most memorable deer hunt and from your facebook page you've, you've got a few of them by the looks of it i was wondering where we're going to go uh as we as we journey on this deer hunt with you my most memorable deer hunt is actually my not the smallest buck i've ever shot obviously but it's my 155 inch whitetail mm-hmm. that was my first archery buck and that's the same deer that i spent, you know, over 45 days in the stand hunting. And I think that is my most memorable deer hunt because I put so much time and effort. I found that book on camera in late August. I told myself I was not going to shoot any deer other than that. It was my first successful bow kill, my first successful bow deer, actually. Really? Okay. And it was. And to start that off at a four and a half year old, 155 inch whitetail, I mean, it was just unbelievable, and it's only been uphill from there. I had um, I had moved my stand down, like I told you earlier, and my dad was actually in my old stand, which would have been 40 yards up the hill. So he was there with me, and when I had actually shot that deer, I had thought that I had missed it because it did not move a single inch, hmm. and it just walked off like nothing happened. So, you know, being disappointed, I sat there for a couple hours just in disbelief until I got down from the stand and there was blood everywhere. So I was a little unsure about it because, you know, it didn't move at all. And I let it sit overnight or not overnight. I let it sit through the afternoon and we went out that night to, you know, go track it. And about 350 yards from where I shot it, I walked up to what was my biggest buck at the time and it was it was definitely my most memorable hunt because that's what I worked so hard for. And I mean, I've shot bigger deer. I shot a 170 a couple of weeks later, but it wasn't a deer that I had had so much connection and history with. So it means a lot to me, but not as much as, you know, shooting a deer that I specifically hunted for months. Right, right. Gotcha. Fascinating deer story. I, it's uh, that they stand still yet and you think you didn't hit them. But come to find out, you did it. It is funny how they do that sometimes. So I've had deer do that too. Really, they didn't move. It was a clear pass through, and then they decided to run. Crazy. Yeah, that's what he just walked off like nothing happened. Right. Yeah, no big deal. Just got just got an arrow through my <laughs> my vitals. All right, let's uh, let's turn to the ten rapid fire questions. I've got ten questions. I did not prep you for these, so they're they're a little interesting. Um, but these are to get to know you a little bit better. Sure. What, all right. What's your number one hunting tip of all time? Number one hunting tip of all time, be consistent in putting the time and dedication. Okay. 
Speaking of which, how often do you shoot your bow? I shoot my bow daily. Daily. All right. And how, how, how much do you shoot? I sh- try to shoot between 12 and 15 arrows daily. Don't overdo it, but make sure that, you know, I still have everything sighted in correctly and my form's still good. I just want to make sure everything's up to date. Okay. And when you shoot the 12, do you shoot all 12 at one time or do you shoot six at a time, one at a time? How do you go about, how do you, what's your approach? And I shoot them in intervals of three. Intervals of three. All right. And at what distances do you usually shoot? I do 20, 30, 40. 20, 30, 40, and back to 20. And back to 20. Excellent. I, I'm always curious about people's archery routines. And then, I mean, it clearly it's working for you. So just wanted to figure that out. All right. We all have these things that we go into the woods with. Maybe they're a good luck charm. Maybe they're actually something useful. Other than that weapon, what's that one thing for you that you got to have or you feel almost naked without it? My grandpa passed away two years ago and left me his one of his handkerchiefs. And I take that on every hunt with me. And I just have this weird feeling that that's part of my success. Because if I forget it, I don't have a successful hunt. But when I take it, every time I have it with me, well, I should say every time I successfully harvest something, I have it with me. That's that's a beautiful thing to bring with you. What's your biggest pet peeve in life? My biggest pet peeve is kind of broad, but it is definitely people who feel the need to bring others down. Right. That's a good one. So you're 20 years old today. Looking back, maybe into your childhood, what would you tell the 10-year-old Danielle Helverson, knowing what you know? I would tell her not to let anything stand in her way, not to listen to what other people are telling her, and just keep pushing towards what she wants to pursue in life and what her dreams entitle. Excellent. You're at a hunting convention somewhere in the world, and a stranger comes up to you and asks you what you do for a living. What do you tell them? You know, I do a couple different things. <laughs> so I would explain to them my position, which whatever company I'm there working with, I'm in with 10-point crossbows. I do some work for them every now and then, too. I explain to them my position and what I'm doing. You know, I tell them that I work for a rubline marketing, and when I'm at home, my parents are actually business owners, so I do a lot of their book work. I have a lot of experience in customer service and financial stuff, and, you know, I'm pretty open book. So whatever anyone asks me, I answer it truthfully. All right. Very good. What did you have for breakfast this morning? I have not eaten breakfast yet today. <laughs> not had breakfast. All right. It's kind of late in the day. You better get going on that or it's going to be lunch. Think about lunch. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You get your own bill, billboard somewhere in the world on a highway. It's a blank canvas. What would you put on it? That's a good question. Hmm. Maybe a hashtag of some sort. I don't know. Hmm. That's a hard one to answer. I guess I've never really thought about making my own billboard. Okay. Well, think about that one. We'll skip that one for now. We'll come back. If I say the word successful to you, who's the first person that pops into your head and why? Um, Dan Drake pops into my head first because he grew up as a Kansas farm boy that, you know, literally had nothing. And he took that and it drove him to be one of the more successful people in the industry. And I just think that's like so motivating and inspiring to come from nothing and build it into something. Right. That's a, it's, it's an amazing accomplishment when it happens completely agree. yes all right what's a typical day in your life look like a typical day in my life i get up about well it depends on if i'm hunting that morning or if i actually have to go to work if i'm hunting that morning i get up about 4 four thirty, get prepped get ready go out to the tree sit till about 10 30 11 based on how the deer movement is come in get some lunch relax for an hour and go back out till evening when i'm away for work it's crazy depending on day to day you know i work about 16 to 18 hour days 
sleep a little bit, get up and work some more. I like to put in the most utmost effort I possibly can to get a job done to the highest potential I can. That's just kind of the kind of person I am. So every day is a little different for me. The last question would have been, what's a typical deer hunting day in your life look like? And it sounds like you, you answered that question. Is there anything additional to that? I mean, if I'm lucky, I get to end the night by, you know, cleaning the deer. <laughs> Good point. All right. Now let's bounce back to the quest- the question we skipped, the billboard question. What would you put on that billboard? Like, What's your philosophy? Yeah, would- Maybe a, a life philosophy or something like that. Um, well, my philosophy in life is, you know, I like to live by treat others the way you want to be treated. Okay. You know, I've had my fair share of run-ins with some of the less friendly people in the world. But to me, I always tell myself, it doesn't matter what impression they leave on you. It matters what impression you leave on them. Excellent. I think that would be good. That would go good on a billboard. I like it. That would go good on a billboard. Yes, it would. Yes, it would. Well, Danielle, that's the 10 rapid fire questions. You did quite well. Thank you for going through that exercise with us. And and thank you You're for right. joining us on the show. It's been an honor and a pleasure to get to know you a little bit better. And I think you have a very bright future. And I, what you're doing as a 20-year-old a uh, lady in this industry, guiding and, and representing products uh and having the success that you are and killing the deer that you are is is quite amazing uh to be quite honest so keep up the good work yeah i will do my best danielle how can we find more information about you if we haven't answered everybody's question here today the best way to ask me questions or get a hold of me is definitely on my social media account direct messages not so much just because I don't have time to respond to all those but I try to be pretty good about comments on photos if you have any questions about what I'm using what my techniques are I'm always free to share with anybody you know that's trying to be more successful like what I do for my tips and tricks and I'm always open to answer questions and let you know what's going on Well, thanks to Danielle for joining us on the Big Buck Registries Deer Hunting Podcast. I certainly enjoyed talking to some someone that is of the younger generation. It's not very often that we can speak to somebody that has their act together as much as Danielle, specifically in the field and deer hunting. I'm not sure how a 20-year-old can be as good a hunter as Danielle is, but it is fascinating. And she's uh, good enough to where she can guide, where she can guide clients on a mule deer hunt. So we wish the best to Danielle. Dusty, do we have a Chubby Tines Tip of the Week? Yeah, we do, Jay. Uh, the Chubby Tines Tip of the Week is sponsored by Morse's Sporting Goods. Firearms, use firearms, bows, use bows. Located at 85 Kentuckuk Falls Road in Hillsborough, New Hampshire. Give Jim a call at 603-464-3444, morse'ssportinggoods.com. Your dollars go further in New Hampshire. There's no sales tax. Morse's Sporting Goods. Going, uh, thinking about hunting season coming up and... You know, a lot of guys park where they can see their truck from their tree stand. And if you're doing that, you know that your deer can see your truck from your tree stand. Also, whether out in the woods or in the field, you know, you might want to reconsider that because the deer pick up on when your vehicle is parked in that particular area. And what's that mean when you park there? That means you're in your tree stand. And uh, I don't know how smart the deer are, but just past experiences on my end, if they can see your truck, they're not going to come by your tree stand. That's true. Although sometimes when I'm out on one side of the property, all the deer are standing next to my truck. Yeah, that could happen. <laughs> but 
most of the time, Jay. I know. Most of the time, if you should at least. If you notify them you're there, they're, they're going to bypass where you're going to. Yeah. I mean, deer are smart. They'll pick up on your patterns. And if you go with your truck and park in that same spot every time, guess what? They're going to figure out that you're coming in shortly after that truck pulls up. That's right. And that's just the way it is. So you got to outthink them. So, well, that's great, man. Thanks for that tip of the week. That was fantastic. Dusty, where can we find you when you're not hanging out here in the studios with me? Uh, shoot me an email, dusty at bigbuckregistry.com. You can look me up on Instagram and Twitter at Chasing Antler, facebook.com forward slash chubby tines outdoors. Jay, where can the people reach out to you when you're not on the mic? Likewise, you can shoot me an email, jay at bigbuckregistry.com, and you can visit us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash bigbuckregistry. We're also on Twitter, which is twitter.com forward slash bigbuckregistry. We're also on Instagram, instagram.com forward slash bigbuckregistry, and YouTube, which is youtube.com forward slash bigbuckregistry. On YouTube, you can listen to all of our podcasts in their entirety. As far as videos are concerned, it's a boring video, but the audio content is there, so you can actually listen to our podcast. You can also listen to all of our live shows that we've done on Thursday nights when we do do them, and we've gone back and interviewed, re-interviewed a lot of our previous guests we had on the show just to put a face to a voice. Let's put it that way. You can always listen to our show on other places as well, not just YouTube. We're found on iTunes, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, and Blueberry. And if you would like to submit a buck to our page for consideration and be featured on our page in front of 250,000 diehard deer hunting fans, all you have to do is go to bigbuckregistry.com forward slash my buck and all of the instructions will be right there. I think that's pretty much everywhere we're at. I think that's a wrap, Dusty. That's a whole lot of big buck, Jay. Sure is. I'm Jay Scott. I'm Dusty Phillips. And this is the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. We'll see you next week. Can't wait. 